0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will be joined by my fabulous co-host, Sarah Marshall. Momentarily, we will be talking about the First Wives Club So each of our episodes have different flavors and there are like, you can categorize some of our episodes where it's like good, vibrant chat. Like there's that kind of episode or like deep feels. We get deep into the feels and like it's one of those episodes, you know, even though we talk about feelings in all of our episodes, some of them go to that place. And then there's a whole category of slumber party vibe, which is just like... (laughs) It just has the vibe of a slumber party. And I feel like this is sleepover slumber party vibe. This is Sarah and Alex. We don't have a guest this week. We have this interesting stretch of the three episodes in the row where we don't have guests. And it's just like friends being friends. And on this sleepover and this slumber party, Sarah shows her friend, Alex, who is me, the first wise club for the first time. And we had a blast more on that in a minute. First, though, You Are Good, a Feelings podcast about movies is made possible with your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon.com slash You Are Good. You got bonus episodes over there. We talk about all sorts of things. And even if the subject that we talk about isn't up your alley guaranteed, there are things in that episode for you. We talked about, and just like that, and it was so nice to hear from people who were like, I'm never gonna watch that show, but the conversation was a lot of fun. That's how we tried to do it. Our next conversation is going to be about... Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022, that's not what it's called technically, but it's basically has the same exact name as the first movie minus the the, but even if you are not interested in this very bad movie, we will talk about, <laughs> I guarantee there will be some fun times for you. Promise, promise, promise. So support us over there at patreon.com slash you are good. If you are able to do so, we appreciate, uh, we appreciate your support. Thank you. And the support is made possible by Nack Factory, Knack Factory, K N A C K Factory, which is a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine. Though they do work throughout these here United States, if you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. All right, the first Wise Club slumber party vibe. We just had fun in this episode talking about this movie, talking about how it works, talking about what we found funny, talking about which parts of it resonate. So I love this conversation. I love, uh, slumber party vibes with Sarah. And I think that you are in for a treat next week. We're going to be covering a star is born the 2018 one. It kind of violates our unofficial, but quasi official rule that we don't cover movies that are younger than 10 years old. We make exceptions depending on like what guests want. Of course I, pretty late in my life realized that a lot of the quote love and romance we see on screen is actually you know codependence (laughs) but we're gonna go deeper into that conversation so if you're keeping up you should watch that and uh only one other just quick content warning we talk about suicide in passing in this movie we talk about it a couple times we don't go deep on it but uh it comes up so just know that all right let's go talk about the first vice club thanks for being here you're good Hello, Sarah Marshall.
1: Hello, Alex Steed. I'm so happy we're here.
0: I too am happy we're here. What are we diving into?
1: We are diving headfirst into the beautiful sea that is the first wives club. And listen to this. Okay. That's me opening a major melon.
0: Yeah. Bring the major into it. We're
1: going to (laughs) party.
0: Bring the major into it. I got flesh on my head. It's my flesh.
1: If you want to hear more about Make Your Melon, listen to our bonus episode on the second half of the first season of And Just Like That. That
0: was really good. That's the first time I think we've ever promoted a previous episode.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Directly. I think it's really great work. I think we really put our hearts and souls into talking about and just like that for whatever that is worth.
0: I agree. So if if you just omit how people respond to the show, and I am always grateful when people have lovely things to say, but if you just think about this show as an exercise in listening to two friends build upon their friendship and we just like inserted a new common language by me learning your language of some of the sex and the city mythology Mm -hmm. what a feat that's been lovely (laughs) it's been a fun time
1: (laughs) I'm so happy that you wanted to I think it's like astrology I think they're all very powerful archetypes because they're essential enough for many people to feel some kind of alignment with one or some or all of them
0: yeah absolutely and other people have made these comparisons already and the memes have happened and I don't know where or when I wasn't involved but like what is the foursome based on like they're based on the furies like what not that's not correct but like the you know like sex in the city archetype uh, applies to the ninja turtles as well like basically that character breakdown applies there so like this archetype exists throughout history in one way or another from sex in the city to the ninja turtles that's my only example (laughs) (laughs) Maybe How I Met Your Mother, I don't know. Little
1: Women, there you go, there's three. Three makes a trend. Yeah, exactly. There we go. That's it.
0: That's it. So it's been nice doing that. But we're not talking about that today. What are we talking about today?
1: So we are talking about the first Wives Club, which was one of, if not the first movie I watched when it was clear to me that America was entering a giant crisis two years ago.
0: Why is this a movie that brings you comfort in the ways that it does?
1: Well, I was thinking about it while I was watching it to talk about today. And I think part of it is that it is a crisis comedy. It is about women who are all totally in crisis. Their lives are in shambles. They acknowledge that fact and then band together to create a more just world.
0: Yeah. So we're going to talk probably at least in passing from a plot point perspective about suicide. Just an FYI to people. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not huge in the movie, but it sets up the movie. But then... The rest of the movie, at least on several occasions, people are like, I don't want to be in a position where I want to kill myself. Like, that's one of the drives for character development here. Mm -hmm. When I was saying to you that I really like movies that is like, let's get together people who have something in common and gang up, conspire against, attack personifications of some social ill. And like office space is a perfect example of that. Like the enemy in office space is like capitalism, right? And like they all get together and kind of like do something about mm-hmm. it, and it's like represented by the office and the people in the office. And in this, it's like all of the ways the cards are stacked against women who are not Jesse Spano,
1: Elizabeth Berkeley,
0: Elizabeth Berkeley, yeah, Berkeley, yeah,
1: yeah, Jesse Spano, Berkeley, Nomi Malone.
0: It's it's about attacking the. Ways the world is cruel to people who are not 27 anymore.
1: Right. Because the whole thing is a reflection on the fact that women are valuable only when they are young and that our value is decreasing as we get older. And in service to men. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So our three main characters, Annie, played by Diane Keaton, Elise, played by Goldie Hawn, and Brenda, played by Bette Midler, meet... At the funeral of their best friend, Cynthia Swan, played by Stockard Channing. They were a foursome in college at Middlebury, of all places. <laughs> and Goldie Hawn has a couple of wonderful little drunken speeches. And one is on the whole starter wife concept, because this movie could really be called the Starter Wives Club, where like they're the starter wives, right? We're like, you get married, you're young, you work as a diner waitress. To help him pay his way through medical school Because that was a thing people could do in the 60s You raise his babies You iron his shirts You help him get to a high position in society And then he's like You know, now that I have this high position in society I would look better with Heather Locklear
0: Yes And our husbands in this are Dan Hedaya mm-hmm. What's his name? The beautiful boy uh, The beautiful boy Victor Garber Vic- Victor Garber And then a man who is not Brian Cranston
1: Stephen Collins <laughs> That's it Another repressed scary T V dad.
0: Yes, there's a lot of people who are oh, is Stephen Collins the seventh heaven guy? Yes. Oh god, he's bad times. Yeah. I didn't re- I was like, I recognize this guy from something, and then I just made him Brian Cranston in my head. And that makes sense why I thought it was Brian Cranston.
1: He does have a Brian Cranston as Tim Watley kind of quality. Yeah. Like he has the iconic scene where he like is meeting up with his wife who he's separated from. They have dinner they have sex. She really thinks they're going to get back together. He's sort of like lying impishly in bed with his bathrobe sort of barely draped over him. And then he's like, "I want a divorce." And then she goes, "But we just made love." Yeah.
0: Yeah. He says, "I love you" right before that.
1: Yes. And he gets her to say it. This
0: movie's full of behavior that's being actively questioned on Twitter at all times right now for a good reason. <laughs> <laughs>
1: The 90s were a totally lawless decade when people just lived their lives and had relationships without, like, a tribunal on the internet to tell them what to do about it.
0: Yeah, you had to conspire with your friends and then um, pull off Mission Impossible, like, feats. So, yeah, so, I mean, we've talked a bit about what happens in this movie already, but, like, walk us through what the drama is or, like, what the plot is.
1: All right, so we have our three main characters, each of them with an apartment more beautiful than the last... I think it is absurd that Nancy Myers was not connected to this movie because, I mean, Diane Keaton's house, seriously? <laughs> yeah, it's extravagant. She has a fireplace as big as she is. It's incredible. And you're like, what? anyway, she shrunk down a French villa and put it inside an apartment in New York City. But they have all been ditched by their husbands for younger women. They reconnect at the funeral of their best friend, who was like the beautiful one, the sophisticated one, the one who was going to do great things who has just died by suicide because her husband ditched her for a younger woman. And also she says later in the letters that the girls get because of loneliness, and she urges them to take care of each other. But first they meet up for lunch, they all put on a brave face, and then they admit that their husbands have all ditched them for younger women. And they're also just feeling alone and like they have no purpose in life. And what are they here for? Basically, it's kind of an existential crisis. And so they decide to team up in order to <laughs> ruin their exes together. And they do so in a really interesting way by basically playing the assets that their ex-husbands have against each other. Yeah, fascinating. <laughs> it like really
0: does feel like a spy thriller. Like the, It doesn't feel like that because it feels very funny. Yeah. But the plan that they come up with feels like it's it really is. And they name drop Mission Impossible. It really does feel like it comes out of Mission Impossible, which also came out the same year.
1: Can you summarize what they do or part of it?
0: Here's the best I can do. Dan Hidea's fortune, which is like from like a furniture store, ultimately.
1: Electronics.
0: Electronics comes from like off the back of the truck stuff from someone within his family. Yes, And that family member does not like him and thinks that he mistreats Bette Midler. And he gives that secret to her so she can leverage it potentially in like an IRS or like investigation situation. And he uses that as blackmail against him, which I love. And then uses that to become like a partner, maybe in the business or become more involved in the business Mm -hmm. to then hire out the PR firm that is run By Seventh Heaven Man, who is Diane Keaton's husband in this situation. And Mm -hmm. she also uses her daughter, who is a lesbian. This movie wants you to know this woman is a lesbian and it's fine. And it's so fine. They're going to talk about it a lot.
1: Lesbians are great now. Diane Keaton. And she says, Dad,
0: I'm a lesbian. A big one. love it. Big,
1: big lesbian. It's it's about the size of the spirit. (laughs)
0: So Diane Keaton ends up buying out his partners or board members in the PR firm that he runs mm-hmm. and has like a good deal of governing control as a result and uses that among many other things to hire out like she's going to be hired by Bette Midler in Dan Hidea's electronics store mm-hmm. that Bette Midler has now taken right and I don't fully know the Goldie Hawn thing outside of the fact that like part of this divorce is she has to sell all of this art that her and Victor Garber theoretically have together but it's really her art and then split the cost with him for the art and and i assume just what happened was no lawyer involved said fair market value for the art which is what you would do in this situation mm-hmm. and in forgetting to just put that into the contract nope
1: they didn't think of that <laughs> yeah she ends up
0: selling it to her friends for a dollar yes and then splits it 50 50 by giving him 50 cents
1: it's adorable. Yeah, that's like the punchline to a joke. Victor Garber hired Lionel Hutz. And then what I love about that is, okay, so Goldie Hawn is ordered by Victor Garber's divorce lawyer <laughs> Lionel Hutz <laughs> to sell... All of the art that is shared assets, essentially, if they're married. So she's like, fine, I'm going to sell all my stuff. I'm going to sell all your stuff. I'm going to sell your Lamborghini. So she sells all of these items to Diane Keaton's character for a dollar. And then Diane Keaton turns around and sells them at auction. And Oh, I forgot
0: this whole plot. <laughs> yeah. Go on. This is like a no, no, no! Please, no! Please <laughs> tell me. I just, I can't believe so much happens. I can't believe I forgot the step one to this whole thing. Yeah, please. Yeah,
1: no. It's <laughs> it's a whole thing. It's a whole wonderful scheme. So it's kind of like money laundering in a way. So they are friends with Maggie Smith, character, Ganilla Garson, something who's like this grand dame of high society, and so they get Ganilla to have lunch. With Sarah Jessica Parker's character, who is the new hot young girlfriend of Dan Hidea. And I would just like to give a special Oscar bid to Sarah Jessica Parker and the way she attacks that salad in the scene where she has lunch with Maggie Smith. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like She's acting her little heart out.
0: (laughs) It's so good. She's talking about how much opportunity basically she sees herself for being a classy lady. Yes. To Maggie Smith, to the classiest dame of them all, Maggie Smith. And she, in the process of doing so, like her plate is taken and she's holding onto her fork, which is a faux pas and something stuck up your ass circles. I guess. And she's humiliated slightly by being told that she's supposed to give her fork over. And while she's doing that and not really... Really catching it she's looking at for what's in her teeth with her knife like mm-hmm. using it to see the reflection of her teeth i love that that scene is so good sarah jessica parker you're fantastic
1: she's great they gave her like six minutes in this movie and she's so memorable and then bronson pink show i love it when a movie has some bronson pink show in there he's just he's like a bay leaf in a 90s movie you're just looking for him the whole time he
0: really <laughs> is if you need someone flamboyant with an accent, and uh, I don't think Bronson Pinchot is either. So he acts his balls off in any scene where he comes in as he brings a probably slightly mm-hmm. offensive accent and is always gay baiting a bit. And mm-hmm. I love his character in any time he's around. Like he's so great. I love him in True Romance. He does that in True Romance. Remember that? That's a really good True
1: one. Romance. Oh my God. The greatest. <laughs>
0: I love him. <laughs>
1: yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Yes. So Maggie Smith tells Shelly to hire Bronson Pinchot, the interior designer, who Brenda works for and who will then get Shelly and Dan Hidea to leave the penthouse that he has bought for Shelly for an hour so that the girls can come in and get Dan Hidea's official business documents and find stuff that the IRS would be interested in. And I'm saying all of this because I'm explaining why we get the wonderful line where Sarah Jessica Parker goes, oh, that's the office. Uh, les (laughs) (laughs) offices.
0: Such a flash
1: forward to Carrie Bradshaw moving to Paris. She's always loved to speak French. Yes. Okay. And so they also have Bronson Pinchot bring Shelly to an auction where he and Maggie Smith pressure her into buying the items that Diane Keaton is selling that used to belong to Goldie Hawn and Victor Garber. So they turn their exes and their exes' new girlfriends into this, like... Human centipede of profit. It's brilliant.
0: Mm, yes, it is brilliant. And operates probably the way like any corporation runs at this point, which is just right. through lies and sleight of hand and cannibalism.
1: It's kind of a comedy financial thriller. It really is. Yeah. In a way, right. Because they're like artificially inflating the value of various properties and kind of playing around with money and doing shady stuff. And then this culminates and they put the squeeze on all of their husbands and threaten all of them with jail, two of them with jail. Yes. (laughs) Because Victor Garber has been having a relationship with underage, it turns out, Elizabeth Berkeley because Dan Hedaya got started with stolen goods. I
0: don't fully understand how the math on that works. It does not matter. Like the punchline there is that his girlfriend turns out to be 16 and he doesn't know, which is kind of a weird punchline. But the math and the proof on that doesn't add up because she's like, here's her high school yearbook from three years ago. And it's like, well, all right. I mean, yeah, then she's an adult, but that's fine. Maybe I'm not set to do this kind of math. Hmm. Maybe this movie was supposed to come out a couple of years before it did. It doesn't matter. Elizabeth Berkeley's too young for uh, Victor Garber. Maybe
1: eighth grade is in high school in Idaho. Uh, eighth grade was in my high school. I went to high school in eighth grade. <laughs> there you go. See, she went to your weird high school. <laughs> yeah. And Elizabeth Berkeley is so cute in this. She is so cute in this.
0: By the way, I'm not advocating for if she was like 19, it was fine. I just want everyone to know.
1: You're doing math over here. So it ends with them threatening two of the exes with jail and Diane Keaton forcing Stephen Collins out of his leadership role at the advertising firm he built and him being forced to take on the role of a divorcee who's been thrown aside. He has to find a new job now. How can he find anyone who wants him? He's in his 40s. And we see Morty write a check to the girls for $150,000. Bill write a check to the girls for $250,000. They're now essentially kept men who can be effectively squeezed for large amounts of cash. And then they use this money to found their Crisis Center for Women, which offers, quote, counseling, family therapy, and abuse intervention for all. And my question is, why can't it offer money? (laughs)
0: I like the message. I like that basically what happens is they realize being involved in this, like all these hijinks and plot and plans and all this stuff that the return on satisfaction with regard to like getting their husbands in particular is unsatisfying, but like the returns are diminishing. I should say they say this and they say like, instead we started to focus our energies, not just on them, but on this and then we see their place and it's the funniest shit in the world. When you consider that they opened this center that has like 20-foot ceilings and it's like immaculate and white inside and it looks gorgeous and it's in Soho. That building is like worth a billion dollars today. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's like next to a Gucci store. (laughs) And I guess it makes sense where they're coming from. But I, yeah, I like the message that it's like, They went after the husbands. They got what they could. And then rather than do what can happen, Mm -hmm. like become Batman and become so obsessed with your fixation Mm -hmm. and grief that you don't end up expanding your vision of making things better. You could just become a weird creep who lurks around in rubber all the time. They instead open something that's a resource center for more than just them.
1: Yeah. Here's a quote. I think Bette Midler's character said this. The only people who would be helped by revenge would be us. And that would make us no better than you.
0: What a cool. That's amazing. Although we like seeing the revenge happen a little bit because of course.
1: Yeah, well, we get that as well. That's the nice thing. We get revenge for like a solid half an hour. And then also like when they do global justice, it's also pretty revengey because they're like, (laughs) we need to help the women of the world or or you're going to go to jail.
0: Which is I love that. I think that that's great. So first of all, when this movie was advertised and Around in My Childhood. I was like, this is a movie about the ex-wives of presidents. And I am not interested necessarily because I don't care about presidential (laughs) drama. And this is about women who happen to be the first wives. And that was so much more interesting. But I was surprised, honestly, because I've seen my share of movies in which Diane Keaton's a sassy older lady. I was surprised by how funny this movie is. Like This movie is yes. made by the man, and I don't know his name, but by the man who wrote and directed the majority of episodes of and created WKRP in Cincinnati, which is like one of the funniest shows on earth. Mm -hmm. This movie has so many amazing laugh out loud lines Mm -hmm. or like situations like all the things that I can't remember any of the specifics, but all the things with Diane Keaton's overbearing mother who's creating just like a very strange repressed dynamic in Diane Keaton I found very funny everything that had to do with like the physical comedy of Goldie Hawn's face was fantastic. <laughs> the energy's so good like it's such a well choreographed movie it's really tight you sent me some info that led us to believe that the original cut of this movie was two hours and 20 minutes and so it feels like they were really smart about getting it together but I don't know like yeah. I on some level thought that this was like a throwaway spurned adult comedy and it's not it's like it's big it's big and deep
1: it's big and deep and it's also tight as a drum yeah yes I wrote down some of the lines I really liked I feel like this movie is really like written and knowing that it was directed by the WKRP guy WKRP in Cincinnati is like the taxi of radio I would say yeah
0: Yeah. it made me want to get into this it did it made me want to get into radio
1: well, there you go. Thank right. you, director of First Wives Club, whose name we didn't bother to remember.
0: <laughs> R.I.P. Howard Esmond. <laughs> he just died, unfortunately, the other day. But love him.
1: But yeah, I, it makes sense that this has sitcom in its bones because there are like so many great lines. Like For example, this is Diane Keaton's Overbearing Mom. I just think this is so perfect. She says, I don't mean to criticize, but you have no feeling for noodles. They're making pasta together. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like such a repressed, overbearing mom thing to say. She goes, thanks, mom. Yes. (laughs) Because what else are you going to (laughs) say? Right. Let's see. Oh, they're reading the letter that Cynthia sent to them right before she died. And (laughs) the mother says, and on such pretty stationery.
0: It's her suicide
1: note. (laughs) It's so good that that's her (laughs) takeaway. And I know so many moms, not my mom, thank God, but so many moms who would respond that way. My
0: dad would have. And not even crassly or known, he just would have been like, oh, that's that's neat, paper.
1: (laughs) Yes. Oh, so the characters go to a lesbian bar at one point. They go dancing in the lesbian bar, like Jonathan Richman, and two great lines a random patron is exiting and Diane Keaton says hi I think you're just you're great (laughs) and then a woman played by the wonderful Deborah Monk is crying at the bar over her lover who just left her for someone much younger and Brenda sits down and she's like that's what happened to me too with my Morty and she shows the woman a picture of Morty and the woman goes she's bush
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh my god you know it's like like it doesn't feel progressive in some ways because like again Mm -hmm. some of the big like and I'm a lesbian and I'm gonna tell dad to ruin his time like that's the punchline a little bit there but those bits are done with such hilarious love like the punchline isn't that they're in a lesbian bar the punchline is that it's like your friend's Mom, who can only be positive to her detriment is at a lesbian bar and that's hilarious mm-hmm. like that's like the punchline is that like I don't know what to say outside of just complimenting you I'm here I want you to know we're all good like it's a very funny it's a very funny dynamic and obviously like Goldie Hawn is non just because people love her like I love that too that's very funny
1: yes and like she gets to dance and like have a good time and meet a rolling rock drinker <laughs> So again, this is like,
0: this is a pretty heavy, when you look at what is being confronted here, it's pretty heavy. Although again, it is tight and has a lot of just like sitcom humor. They're all, because of the dynamics that we've talked about, and we actually touched on this in the end, just like that episode and talking about plastic surgery, because of the dynamics that they are faced with as women at a particular phase in their life and they are no longer quote valuable to men who in context, in theory, create their value. Mm -hmm. They're all in situations where they're terrified of now being like a useless and b as a result, lonely, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: unshakably lonely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, in a classic journey, like, through going through the journey of realizing this stuff, doing the revenge stuff or whatever, they realize that they're not lonely. They have togetherness and friendship and they can do stuff for the community and they like see the value there. You know, that's like sort of like classic movie journey stuff. But I was struck by how it's not like a light thing that they're bucking up against. They're like, I don't want to be lonely and maybe kill myself.
1: Right. Like, I don't want my life to be so destroyed that I can't cope and I have nothing left And I kill myself or I kill someone else like Betty Broderick. Like, this is also totally the Betty. Do you know the Betty Broderick story? That was a big Lifetime movie with Meredith Baxter Burney. I do. But recap, this
0: is a great time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Betty Broderick was a woman who I think accurately felt that she had given. There's a Joni Mitchell line that also covered this idea. I gave you all my pretty years. Ugh. Arrow straight to the heart. So that was the Betty Broderick story. And I think basically her husband ditched her for a younger woman. And she went out one night and killed her husband and the younger woman. And it was a big story in the news. And it was one of those stories that I think people were interested in because a lot of men were like, it could have been me. Mm -hmm. And maybe a lot of women were like, it could have been me. Right. I don't know, like there was something about it that was like, well, that's taking things too far. But like, yeah, it's uh, (laughs) a it's a thing that happens to a lot of people that because the way that gender has worked in America for a very long time is that women are a commodity and have value that they have like some control over, but not a ton and that if you get cast aside by a man historically, you're just kind of screwed. As Dana said in our Anastasia episode, sex for them. She turned into seafoam. Sucks for them.
0: Totally. <laughs> we need to make that a t-shirt.
1: Yes. This also reminds me of 9 to 5 because it's about three women. The no-nonsense one, the sexy one, and the mousy one. Yeah. Who are in a wonderful kind of slapstick comedy that is actually about very serious themes.
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's kind of like the difference between this and 9 to 5 is that like maybe some of the overt levers that made this happen have been addressed since like through various Mm -hmm. laws and regulations etc
1: or at least people kind of think that they have been even if they haven't really I think is what the mid 90s were about
0: yes totally and even in the places where there may be change or the perception of change the social structure that enables those levers are still very firmly in place and those social structures being like Goldie Hahn's character as an actor reveals. What are the three kinds of women there are, she says, in movies?
1: Babe, district attorney i driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> the district attorney
0: thing was so accurate <laughs> that I was like, holy shit.
1: Right? I
0: laughed out loud very hard in that spot. But like she's talking about her as an actress, but like the binary to that runs on all women across the board in different formats is what this movie is presenting. And I will say, I cannot believe that this movie was written by one man and directed by another man. <laughs>
1: Right. I mean, doesn't it feel, in the same way that I think people call Charade the best Hitchcock movie that Hitchcock never made, I think this is the best Nora Ephron movie that Nora Ephron had nothing to do with.
0: No doubt. I looked it up and was legitimately shocked.
1: (laughs) And it's based on a book by Olivia Goldsmith, so it is based on an original work by a woman. But Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's remarkable that, I mean, and it was a sensation when it came out. It did much better financially than anyone anticipated. I think it made about $100 million domestically and a little less than twice that Holy crap. overall. And what's funny is that according to an interview with Bette Midler, the studio never wanted to make a sequel because they were like, it's a fluke that it made that much money this time. It won't happen again. Oh my God.
0: I feel like in some way that this movie nods to Hocus Pocus in it. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like in some way this movie was writing... The textual wrongs of Hocus Pocus. When when we talked about Hocus Pocus, you're like, we love this movie, but at the end of the day, it's like witches are not like used as a metaphor for anything. They're just bad. Like the witches are bad. Right. Like even though we know what happened with the witches. And she says in this movie that them and their roles of writing these wrongs are three witches. In a movie that she's in with Mm -hmm. Sarah Jessica Parker three years after Hocus Pocus comes out, and they are like all these shenanigans were happening 400 years ago, these women would have been absolutely. Absolutely, if it was in Europe, burned at the stake or here pressed under a rock.
1: Or they would have consolidated Germany or something.
0: Yeah, 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 totally. That's ridiculous about the sequel thing. And I don't know how the sequel would have worked one way or another, but I'm going to take this as a spiritual sequel to Hocus Pocus.
1: Totally. I think it is. It's a cross between Hocus Pocus and Nine to Five.
0: Yes, 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 yes. The nine to five parallel is fantastic. And I also, I just hadn't considered until you said that we've talked so much about nine to five recently, how much office space, which I referenced, pulls from nine to five as well. Hmm. It's like a very similar scene. It's not obviously not dealing with the same dynamics. It's just dealing with the dynamics of like the realities of capitalism crushing your soul out of your body and you responding accordingly. Yeah.
1: I would say Brazil also (gasps) has a little bit in common with nine to five right
0: yeah you're right I love Brazil oh.
1: they don't have nothing in common and the apartment you know I mean there's like a, oh, there's, yeah, I was actually a thinking I would love to see a super cut somewhere of movies that have maybe ever so slightly exaggerated office scenes but probably not you know because the yeah. apartment we established Jack Lemmon as an accountant who's working just one of these giant big busy 1950s 60s offices where it's just like clickety-clack-clack, mm-hmm. you know, for rows and rows of people. Oh, and also the Meek Shall Inherit number and Little Shop of Horrors, oh, yeah. where we have the chorus on the typewriters. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah, I just want to see a montage of that.
0: Definitely, like soul-sucking office environments.
1: <laughs> right, like office as a world apart from the rest of the world, like the church or the moon. Yeah,
0: it all, and it all takes place in John Hartford's tall buildings.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I love it. So, like, there is the larger commentary in this movie, and then there are so many, like, sub-commentaries mm-hmm. because of the different experiences these women are going through and the different specific dramas that they're going through. Like, but mother like, seems to, of all the characters, like, have it kind of the most together. Mm. Like, she has, like, a really lovely relationship with her son. I actually really love... I love her son. Mm -hmm. Like usually in that role, the son in that situation would be just like a precocious shit. And you'd be like, oh, like this kid. And this kid's like kind of lovely. And like he has to learn Hebrew for his bar mitzvah. And he does Mm -hmm. without question. He just does. He's not shitty or anything about it. Looking at you, rock. Yeah, looking at you, rock. And he dances. That's just like that reference. Everyone. He dances (laughs) with his mom. I love that kid. But I like her entire just like the only kind of shitty thing that she's dealing with is a massively shitty thing which is like apparently the only thing her ex-husband will invest in is the bar mitzvah for her son and like nothing else Mm -hmm. I like how they're in varying levels of disarray they're not like across the board in the same exact place like she's there and then Goldie Mm -hmm. Hawn is not doing okay like Goldie Hawn is approaching driving Miss Daisy Place And you had originally suggested when you, we were talking about which movies we want to cover. I'd say the most beautiful companion movie to this is Death Becomes Her because like there is both a Meryl Streep reference in this movie mm-hmm. and she's reconciling being older to the point where like she gets involved in some shenanigans. And that's what that's about. And then interestingly, Diane Keaton appears to be fine. But she's one of those people that's so fine. You're like, oh, God, if Mm -hmm. whatever, if she realizes her sweater is unraveling slightly, it could be the end of her. Like she's like that kind of weird together. Yes.
1: And she's wearing all of Jimmy Stewart's old clothes. We realize it's because like she has trouble
0: dealing in or acknowledging negative stuff. And that plays into the plot and that her therapist is a very classic 90s therapist Mm -hmm. in that she has like a gigantic office. She has written a book. Mm-hmm. She has a method specific to her. Silk blouse. The Silk blouse. They have props involved. There's a whole exercise. Like, I don't blame anyone who watched movies in the 90s and never wanted to go to therapy because it seems... So fucking involved.
1: Thank you, Alex. That seems directed at me. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, why were we portraying therapy? And you have to hit Marcia Gay Harden with a little bat. Who wants that? And then she fucks your husband anyway. I mean, yeah, I don't want that. There's also a great episode of Sex in the City. I'm not making this up. You're going to think I'm exaggerating. I'm not. Where she goes to therapy one time. Well, no, a few times, but then she has to stop going forever because she meets John Bon Jovi playing someone else in her therapist waiting room and they have sex. And then she says, so what are you in therapy for? And he says, I'm fucked up about women. I totally lose interest after having sex with them. (laughs) And she just never goes back to therapy again because she doesn't want to run into John Bon Jovi. It's great. That's fantastic.
0: That's actually perfect on every level. I love that a whole lot. <laughs> and then the funny joke that comes out of that, the haha joke that comes out of that. That's like a, actually like a delicious punchline is, mm-hmm. as we talked about before, she's talking with her husband and they're still sleeping together. And he says, I love you to her after they fuck and then asks for a divorce. And then his girlfriend comes and his girlfriend is the therapist I just referred to who's trying to coach Diane K. Ke- Keaton through actually responding to her negative emotions. And this triggers the breakthrough in which Diane Keaton can finally touch her negative emotions. It's a very funny, like it's a very elaborate bit and they pull it off beautifully.
1: It's great. And also Diane Keaton is the only person I've seen in a movie who screams the way I scream when I'm really upset. (laughs) We are kind of like screaming in one register for a sentence And then like the last word, you just go like full out, you know, like we just made love, you know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I love I God, I love obviously I love Diane Keaton. The casting of this trio is really perfect because she's such like a soothing presence. Mm -hmm. And then. There's no other way to describe Bette Midler, although they play it down in this movie because of her character, but she's brassy. Like, that is brassy. Mm-hmm. And then Goldie Hawn's a fucking wild card all the time. Anytime Goldie Hawn is on any screen ever in any role, wild card. <laughs> you
1: don't know. She's and like, she has so many speeches that are just, like, really astute.
0: You yeah. Know? And you're just like,
1: damn. Yeah. She's
0: like the Charlie Day of the group, but more coherent.
1: <laughs> what is the speech that struck
0: you in this go?
1: Oh, like, I mean, there's so many. Like, for example... This is just a little moment and it's, I mean, it doesn't seem like that brilliant, but she expands on it more later. But when they first all meet up again and have lunch, she says, youth and beauty, man, that's the ticket, which like, yeah, that's obvious, but still. Oh, and here's another great line by Diane Keaton's mom. You're 46. A woman your age has a better chance of getting slaughtered by a psychopath in terms of remarrying.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a great one.
1: (laughs) And then when they're all experiencing their low moment before they decide to band together, Goldie Hawn is getting drunk at the bar talking to the bartender because she has just gone out for an audition for what she thinks will be the lead role in this like exciting new movie. She wants to play Monique and then it turns out they want to cast her as Monique's mother. Hmm. She's very upset about this and she's like Shelly Winters is Monique's mother. (laughs) Sean Connery is Monique's mother except he's not because Sean Connery is Monique's boyfriend.
0: Yeah, it's so good. like all of the commentary throughout in all of the things that are touched on and that are like packaged really well in jokes mm-hmm. is surprising. I mean, with a much different edge and a much different humor. But this movie is like basically like the onion. <laughs> all of its jokes are very funny, but are also saying something very serious in a way that doesn't feel like an after school special.
1: Yeah, it also feels like Designing Women, which was like such an issues show. And it's funny to me that, I don't know, I feel like maybe it's a little bit easier to make this kind of thing now because media has diversified more and there's more low budget projects. But then again, there's fewer like medium budget projects like this, which are the kind of thing that would occasionally generate something like this or Bridesmaids or 9 to 5, Mm -hmm. where like every few years they're like, let's make a movie for women. They keep asking for it. Let's just do one and see what happens and then give it up for another several years.
0: I could see criticizing this movie and just being like the only people whose troubles get covered are like in the nineties in particular, the only people whose troubles get covered are like affluent people. But it's like, I actually find it very interesting usually like this is a movie that would get covered in some way by like a low budget indie movie and it would mm. be like a sad working class mom mm-hmm. it would be that sort of thing set it off yeah i although i yeah. love set it off so much like set it off is oh yeah great. but like yes totally but that's the kind of thing and like i like that it's like even rich ladies you can have all mm-hmm. the money you want doesn't matter you're still stuck in a cycle in which your value is wholly determined by how you're serving a man in one way or another, or the men around you in one way or another. And your, you know, affluence is going to save you comparatively and it's going to give you privilege for sure. But like, that's not going to still save you from this trap in which your comparative value is based on whether Dan Hiday is happy.
1: <laughs> I said, Morty, what are you a pirate? What's next? A parrot? <laughs>
0: <laughs> did she get back together with Dan Hidea at the end is that really what happens
1: yeah yeah they, they do at the end because basically he's like I'm sorry I got together with Shelly and was spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on a plate <laughs> it's you I want
0: I like that only one of them though
1: yes I think that's a nice amount I also like that we have Shelly standing outside not wanting to go into the benefit And then Victor Garber coming outside and her saying, so what's going on in there? A bunch of battered women dancing around or what? Which is like almost a Carrie Bradshaw line, to be honest.
0: It's so funny. It's such a bad thing to say.
1: It is. And you know what I like about Carrie? I've been thinking about this. She is a medium bad person. She's not a terrible person. She's not like interestingly Hmm. bad. And she's not really a good person. She's just kind of selfish. It's just like she's just like a bad person in a way that you don't even need to comment on. And I find that refreshing.
0: I do, too. She's self-obsessed. Mm-hmm. Like her character is Mark Maron. <laughs> that level of neurotic and self-obsessed in a way where they can still be affable at the end of a conversation and you can still enjoy them. But like some things come at you and you're like, oh, re- oh OK. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's re- okay, OK. OK. We'll go. We'll move beyond that a little bit. Like a little old fashioned in some ways.
1: Right. And where if your own good friend in real life, if you were like, I'm pregnant with my ex's baby. If they were like, well, speaking of exes, I left a message on Big's machine the other day. You would just be like, all right, no, 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 thank you. But TV is different. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, totally. Totally. My favorite line by the mom in this movie, by the overbearing mother of Diane Keaton, mm-hmm. is, uh, you're very happy. You don't need self-esteem.
1: You liked that one so much, you texted it to me. <laughs> 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 that is like, again, like these just all feel like real people is the thing to me. And I think there's a sweet spot between like sitcom hilarity and it really seeming like a person you know or have known in your life. Yes, agreed. I love Goldie Hawn getting her college in and saying, I want Tina Turner. I want Jagger. (laughs) This was a movie that I grew up watching a lot in whole or in part on TV. So I've been seeing it since I was like eight, Hmm. probably. And it's very funny to me to have kind of started off seeing this movie. as just like what adults right now are doing and now seeing it as a historical document. There are amazing cameos in the final scenes at the benefit where they're opening their crisis center. We have Ed Koch as himself enjoying the buffet. And then we have a scene where Bronson Pinchot is talking to Gloria Steinem. Amazing. Amazing.
0: And then we have, preparing us for the rest of our lives, Ivana. It's Ivana, yeah, right? Yeah, Ivana. Ivana Trump. Her advice is basically to take them for all they have. Yes. Referring to, at that time, her piece of shit husband, Donald Trump. <laughs>
1: Yep, that guy. I've heard of him. The name rings a bell. Hard to say why exactly. Maybe it was that big New Yorker pizza ad he did. There's an
0: an amazing video of Bo Burnham like on stage being interviewed about something. And he's just like, I will never get over that. It's Donald Trump. I just won't get over. He's like, someone could be like, but his policy on he's like, it's Donald Trump. He's like, but but he said he's like, it's Donald Trump. Like, we can't talk. Any more about anything. It's so crazy that
1: it's Donald Trump. Uh huh. (laughs) Ivana told us. Like the guy who, if you were a kid in the 90s, you grew up seeing in commercials for anything. He would be in an ad for anything. It was incredible. Even to a nine year old, he visibly had no dignity, you know? (laughs) The man who ran a casino into the ground, okay?
0: On that logic, I would be like as prepared as the fast talking micro machines guy to become the president of the United States. I'm just trying to think like anyone like the narrator of the six feet of bubblegum commercial like that would have been fine for me. It's all. (laughs) But anyway, Ivana.
1: Ivana's there. We
0: get a good Trump reference in it and that's fantastic. And the Trump reference is take him for what you can.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's like, well, Ivana, you didn't take enough, did you? (laughs) Seems like he could have gotten some help from Diane Keaton. (laughs) I love that they have that big calendar that they're writing on. I don't see how I'm supposed to get anything done without one. I would say that, like, aside from the fact that this movie is entirely confined to the problems of affluent Manhattan white women, which I would say is like the problem there is not that this exists, but that there weren't a lot of other movies that talked about any other women
0: at the time, which there weren't. Right. Totally. To our Stephen King conversation.
1: Right. And then to me, the only kind of thread running through this that feels like a bummer is the negativity between women. Yes. You know, specifically like when Brenda runs into Morty and Shelly at the boutique and Shelly's like, Brenda, why don't you try these on in your size? And she like gestures. It's very mean. She's, you know, and we do need to establish that Shelly sucks. So... (laughs) You know, and then they call her Princess Pelvis later. And again, it's like, it feels like very 2022 to be like, there should have been less negativity between women in this movie about all out warfare in the <laughs> wake of being ditched by your husband.
0: I think the only tweak that would have made this feel more contemporary, and I agree, I was like, eh, like the them making the new girlfriends who are zero percent responsible for how these men acted to them mm-hmm. it feels like a misfire I think the only way that this movie could feel more contemporary is if they somehow roped them into this plan right like if it was like collaboration and not competition between them and like they kind of got them in it they do it a little bit like in a, the safest way possible of bringing the daughter into it mm-hmm. but I think it would have been nice had they brought in Elizabeth Berkeley and Sarah Jessica Parker into the plan rather than make them jokes the entire time,
1: right. I do like that Goldie Hawn befriends Elizabeth Berkeley, and she's not brought in because she's not really you know right, but manipulates her right? <laughs> yes, she totally does, but then she's in the audience at her play, it seems like she means her no <laughs> ill will in the end. It complicates the message of like the issue being that women's value socially is determined by men and their value can plummet if they are discarded by men. So it's Mm -hmm. like that argument doesn't make sense as an argument where you pit yourself against other women because that's beside the point. But also like this was the only way we knew how to tell stories in 1996.
0: Yeah. yeah. And the children who are raised on these plots are now having conversations about how they could be different now. So, you know.
1: Yeah. Essentially, (laughs) I think that the idea that there's a war on between young hot women and everyone else Is very silly because it's very hard to be a young hot woman. It's like walking around with like money stuck to your body. Weird things happen to people with money stuck to their body.
0: (laughs) This is the truth. Yeah, this is the truth.
1: (laughs) I love the scene where they're hanging out in Goldie Hawn's downtown building and they have like one billion candles burning. And it's a building that like, I don't know if it's under active renovation at that point. (laughs) I guess not. But I'm just like, are there any chemicals? like anywhere or like gases it seems not great yeah (laughs) I love thinking about the fact
0: that like at this time I was growing up on like train (laughs) spotting and you were growing up on the first wives club there's a really funny like formative ideology or Mm -hmm. like early on I was growing up on like ghostbusters like these are really funny ideology shaping movies for young us that makes a lot of sense for where we landed
1: I think so, yeah. You know, when I, as a kid, I loved this movie. I loved Erin Brockovich. I loved Designing Women. I really clearly, like, identified as, like, a 35-year-old career woman trying to have it all. <laughs> Which is really funny, because I was 11.
0: It is really funny. You're like, these are my people.
1: Yeah, I was like, I too. I guess felt like very harried and overwhelmed all the time. And I was apparently expected to shave a bunch of shit.
0: There's a theory that you have said, based at least on this movie's prequel, Hocus Pocus, that Bette Midler appears to have in her contract that she would be allowed to sing a song.
1: (laughs) I think Mara Wilson told us that, and I'm inclined to believe that that's just literally true. Totally, because of this movie.
0: (laughs) She and her two friends, who don't have Bette Midler voices, have to sing um,
1: You Don't Own Me. However, Diane Keaton was in the original Broadway cast of Hair. Ah! Oh my
0: god, that's amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they uh, they
0: sing You Don't Own Me, and it's great, and they sing You Don't Own Me under the 20 foot ceilings of their Soho based women's center
1: by themselves. Yeah. I
0: love it. It's it's great. It's a great it's like fireworks.
1: And they run out into the street and it's like it's just a little bit unreal feeling. It's a little bit an American in Paris or something. But it could just be like one of those blocks that doesn't get a lot of traffic. We don't know. <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah, I thought this is great. This director didn't really do much after that. Didn't do a whole lot, which I'm kind of surprised by. Although if you made that WKRP syndication money, you're probably fine. Like everything was probably OK.
1: Right. Like maybe he just became like a treasure hunter. <laughs> so
0: he just kept getting those checks in. OK, so we're, who we're talking about is Hugh Wilson. He passed four years back. Wow, that was a long time ago now. Hugh Wilson made. Oh, God. Hugh. Holy shit. Hugh Wilson wrote and directed Police Academy, a movie that did not age well. And I'm surprised he made this movie.
1: I've never seen Police Academy. I know enough to know that it's a different tone than this one. Different
0: tone for sure. That is a movie. I mean, talking about I don't think too often about that because I think about like the big titles I grew up on. But like when I was a child, there was rarely the original Police Academy, but there was a Police Academy sequel on television at all times bobcat goldthoy in police academy was on television every day of my young life, hmm. and that made a mark
1: i feel like so much of life is decided by like <laughs> what comedians are getting play when you're growing up because mm-hmm. I, I think i grew up watching i know that so i married an axe murderer was on a lot when i was a tween and i feel like that was very influential
0: yeah tbs all the time
1: yeah and comedy central i guess like my question about this movie because like this remains true for me i sought it out in like the early days of the pandemic i was like i want to be transported i want to feel joy and this really did it for me and it's still it always does make me feel joy like it always works it's one of those movies that always works for me and i wonder if it worked for you and if so why you think that might be yeah
0: it totally worked i mean i again it's just technically tight it's technically tight it's well acted all these people are spectacular like they're all people you already love no time is wasted in getting to know we're loving these people because you already like you love Goldie Hawn you love Goldie Hawn your entire life like that's easy but I think even without that you'd be able to jump into that it's very well written and the concept like regardless of you know you relating specifically to the concept but like the concept of my life didn't land where I thought it was going to land it's time for me to stop sitting in it or accepting it and to like maybe figure another thing out and ideally like form a friendship or reform a friendship in doing that like everything about it is very satisfying and it's fun it has like heist elements to it which is really always like gets your adrenaline going a little bit and no I think it works very very well it's just a good comedy it's like Mm -hmm. a surprisingly good comedy that goes again as we said earlier like very deep in ways that even if you're not relating to the exact text of the movie is very satisfying in the ways that it does parallel your life
1: yeah yeah and also, it's just still funny to me that, like, I think we still are dealing with the belief by whoever is in charge of making most movies that, like, women aren't funny. What do you think that's about?
0: <laughs> I don't know. But what I love about the show that we make is I feel like once in a while, not once in a while, like, actually pretty often we end up covering a movie that wasn't taken seriously because women liked it. mm and mm-hmm. actually, more often than not, yeah. And I love it. It like That's makes me true. like a little emotional when people are like, "Yay, you're covering this movie that no yeah. one in my life takes seriously because too many women
1: liked it." Right, like even Titanic, one of yeah. the top grossing films of all time. Like you said about the sequel thing, it's considered a fluke. Yeah, because ridiculous.
0: You know, like Titanic. It's like, oh, it's because it's a shit. Ch- no, it's like it's like it's a fucking it's a fucking beautiful love story that's why it worked like it's not because it's the fucking ship or the spectacle like that wouldn't have worked if there are other titanic movies where that doesn't happen you know (laughs) i love that we have a space where we can talk about this stuff in a way where it acknowledges the ways that this worked because like the passing ways that people discard or the ways that a movie like this lands or how entertaining it is or whatever just those little they're tiny tiny things that suggest to our person that it's like your taste and your interest and your experience doesn't mm-hmm. fucking matter. And that mm-hmm. sucks. Like that's the worst. Yeah.
1: And like, I think it's obvious that women watch movies. And one of the reasons <laughs> is because the world is very stressful and sometimes you need to escape and watch a movie. Absolutely. <laughs> no, I don't know what the, I don't know. I really, and it, I just don't
0: know how it could be anything other than just, overt card-carrying uniform-wearing sexism. I don't understand how it's anything other than that.
1: Yeah. I find it such a weird, hilarious expression of sexism to even exist. Like the idea of arguing that women aren't funny. (laughs) 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 And that it's a thing that people feel passionately about. And I remember growing up Again, as like a tween, because when I was a kid, like I wanted to be a comedian when I grew up and I was really invested in that because comedians made me happy. And it was clear to me that like a lot of men made me laugh a lot. And also a lot of women made me laugh a lot. It's funny to me to think of anyone who has never been made to laugh by a woman. It's <laughs> Like what kind of life are you living?
0: I don't know. Comedy to me when it works is about somebody dealing with or reconciling like either being the odd person out Mm -hmm. and having to navigate or coming from a place of like earnest naivete or coming from a place of having like a really interesting and sort of like cutting perspective be it like a comedian or be it like a someone in a movie or whatever and if your entire frame of reference is the only people that could be funny are fucking white guys like I don't understand I don't I understand in that like your worldview just must be so limited or marked by your belief in the superiority of these things mm-hmm. but like you know I there's only so many scenarios that you can milk that for when you're talking about a specific kind of person yeah. And you see it exhausted on, you know, most television that came up before 10 years ago is almost entirely that perspective. And you see how exhausted it got. And that's why people are just like, God, like anything that comes out now that is not that and is well written and has like a good writer's room. People just like gobble up because it's like all you could eat for the longest time was like dry turkey. And then suddenly <laughs> someone was like, hey, you know what? Every other fucking food exists. <laughs>
1: And I feel like historically women have been able to sneak through by being hot. Like I think Fran Drescher yeah. is a great example. And also by being like funny in a dumb way in the character they're playing. So like Fran Drescher and Lucille Ball are both, I think, like geniuses comedically, but they were able to make it look easy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
1: You had to hide it. And Goldie Hahn too. Like she's been doing the dumb blonde thing for, you know, longer than I should say.
0: Yeah, totally. Since the goddamn 1960s. It's amazing.
1: (laughs) She was on laughing. It's
0: so cool. It's so cool.
1: I guess to me it also maybe is cool because it reveals how making someone laugh is a very powerful thing. And so it feels like saying this absolutely absurd, unprovable thing is a way of saying like no woman could have that kind of power over me. Because I think being made to laugh by someone is like it's very vulnerable Yeah, You know, and so it's acknowledging the power of funniness.
0: I think that you're totally right. But like, I mean, God, like there's no movie I've laughed at more in the past 10 years than Booksmart. Mm. Like, I think like Booksmart's like the funniest fucking movie I've ever seen. And thank God it did not center. (laughs) Thank God it wasn't like, you know, it had whatever prowess it had to be able to put people in the front and the way that it did. But like, I could see that movie getting made five years beforehand and the studio being like, we need jonah hill to also be in this movie
1: <laughs> like cuz
0: no one's going to watch it if it's just these two women but yeah i it boggles me
1: also isn't the star of that movie literally jonah hill's sister jonah hill's
0: sister yeah <laughs>
1: right so I love how there's a direct line we can see chronologically when are we ready for the boy hill and when are we ready for the girl hill
0: for Beanie Feldman what a great oh man I love her name too Beanie Feldman what a fucking great name yes screw you Jonah no just kidding we were just talking (laughs) yesterday about how great Jonah Hill is because
1: in this house we love the whole Hill Feldman family (laughs) we love the whole Hill family we were
0: talking about it because of something that this movie shares something in common with and our last movie shares something in common with Mm -hmm. is uh, Rob Reiner's in this. Rob Reiner directed Misery which we talked about last week. Rob Reiner was also in The Wolf of Wall Street which we love in which Jonah Hill is a fucking genius. Jonah Hill in The Wolf of Wall Street as you pointed out at like age 25 is a genius.
1: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it seems like we covered this pretty good. <laughs> TNE <laughs> T-N-E!
0: Okay, so there's many fathers in this movie. That's true. Dan Hedaya is a father in this movie. Mm -hmm. Stephen Collins. Yeah, the the worst sitcom dad in all of history is a father in this movie. Who, in your view, is the daddy?
1: I think it's Sarah Jessica Parker, because again, she's given a classic 90s bimbo role and very little screen time, and she just goes for it and i think she's so funny and memorable and i just love the way she attacks that salad like she shows no mercy and just i don't know she really comes across as someone who's like extremely annoying and sucks and you would not want your ex or your dad to be engaged with but is also clearly like very vulnerable and striving and just is like i don't know she's like a full character somehow i really appreciate it yeah
0: Yeah, she's so she's great. She's great. She just acts so hard in everything.
1: Yes. Like some actors, you're like, oh, it just feels like we went home with you. And with Sarah Jessica Parker, it's like there's a choreography. It's a dance. Yeah. It's a dance of acting. Because she
0: ends up being so defined by the role of Carrie, which is such a specific role and such a specific. And as we said, like a little annoying and a little bad in particular ways, but not too much that you fully totally don't like them. Or at least I don't. Like she she's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Just like her, seeing her on screen. Mm-hmm. It's like I, I, I'm so sorry to make two Mark Marin references in the show in this context, which is really <laughs> funny and tells a lot How about me. You. But he, Oh, like whenever he talks about like Will Ferrell, just like him being on screen, there's something about like his electricity and energy like that just makes him laugh Mm -hmm. even when he's not doing anything. And I feel exactly that way about her. Like there's something about like her energy and electricity where you feel like at any moment something very, very funny is going to happen. (laughs) And it's not slapstick, you know, It's but it's like it's just on.
1: Well, I agree. And I would also love to see a cut of like all the scenes in Sex and the City where they have Carrie thinking and writing about something. And I want to see them with the voiceover taken out. <laughs> so we just have to watch Sarah Jessica Parker wandering around and making exaggerated faces in her own apartment, oh which she God. managed to make look like normal behavior for six oh, years. God. It's incredible. That's so great.
0: I'm gonna pick the daughter whose name I don't know, who is a quote big lesbian. Yeah, she's the and best. is absolutely like again. Like I think that like, this movie has like clunky '90s gay pride stuff, but like mm-hmm. the person who sees the need for change before anybody else does mm-hmm. is this daughter who refers to her father as the man her mother is sleeping with, and is like, "You gotta do something about this," and then is willing. To infiltrate the organization so that they can do all of the things that they're going to do because she's like, finally, you've done something. And as a person, and I love my stepfather, but as a person who actively encouraged my mother to maybe not be so married to my stepfather, (laughs) 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 because it was going to make them both happier and it did in the end of Uh the day.
1: Right. People don't want to admit defeat at things that they don't like doing.
0: Don't Even though
1: you're, everything seems
0: nice now. But I appreciate that daughter in her position in the situation.
1: She's great. And also like, yeah, the thing about her planning to reveal that she's a lesbian to her dad at a time when she wants to ruin his day is like a depressing... 90s ism but also I feel like this guy sucks she knows he sucks this will ruin his day (laughs) right and she like understands that it really will ruin his day which is very sad but at least she's using that to her advantage
0: that's a great take that's a fantastic take that's exactly right (laughs) I love it
1: yeah thanks for bringing us into this movie I loved it thank you for saying we could talk about any movie I wanted (laughs)
0: Alright everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing this episode. Thank you so much to Miranda Zickler for editing this episode. Thank you very much. You, your listener, can find us on Twitter, you can find us on Instagram, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash you are good. You can send us messages there, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and hear our bonus content. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for producing the beats that you hear in the transitions in the show. We appreciate you, Lesh. We appreciate everything you do for the show. Thank you for listening out there. Remember, we're covering A Star is Born 2018 for next week's episode. That's a heavy one. And we're going to talk about what that means in the context of uh, movies about love and romance. I think that's all you need to know for right now. Thanks for being here. You are good.